there's no one person that can whistle a symphony. It really takes the whole orchestra. And so now it's more, more than ever, we need all hands on deck. This is such an important time in history. That was Dr. Shinida Sariapal of the U.S. Department of Energy introducing our podcast today with a quote from H.E. Lacock. Dear listeners, welcome to this week's episode of the Hydrogen Innovators. It's a podcast series produced by the Stanford Hydrogen Initiative, spotlighting bold innovators in hydrogen all the way from academia to industry. You can find our podcast series, Hydrogen Innovators, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm Karen Baert, recent Stanford MBA graduate, entrepreneur, and innovation strategist at the Hydrogen Initiative. And I'm thrilled to be your host for this week's podcast. Today, we have the incredible privilege to welcome Dr. Sunida Sadiapal. Sunida, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Karen, for the invitation. Dr. Sunida Sadiapal is a director for the U.S. Department of Energy's Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Technologies Office. She coordinates across offices on hydrogen, which now covers over $10 billion in funding. She's been more than two and a half decades of experience across industry, academia, and government, all the way from research to uh, deployment. Sunida is often known as the Joan of Arc or Jeanne d'Arc, or Mother Teresa for hydrogen, due to her steadfast commitment over decades of ups and downs. She received a PhD from Columbia University and did postdoctoral work in applied and engineering physics at Cornell. Sunida, today we'd love to talk a little bit about the hydrogen industry and your view on the industry. Then we'd love to move towards um, some more specific details on the DOE and the DOE strategy in hydrogen. And finally, we will end the podcast with some more personal uh, leadership questions. Well, thank you so much. Great. Let's dive straight in. So you have been working on fuel cells since I think the early 2000s before there was that this much attention around hydrogen, right? There was a first burst of engagement in 2003 with the start of the fuel cell initiative, and you joined the DOE right at that time. Now, fuel cells and hence electrolyzer technology have been around for a while. The, the BAM electrolyzer technology was developed in 1960 at General Electric. Both of us just got back from Sarah Week in Houston, and hydrogen was one of the main topics there, with all of the hydrogen-related sessions very well attended. Now, what has changed? Yeah, so, um, and again, Karen, thanks so much for the invitation and for all of your efforts in terms of education, outreach, just the interest in hydrogen. And I think there, there are three main changes that I, I think are critical. And one is that countries are recognizing that in order to meet their climate goals, they need a carbon-free molecule. Just electrification alone is, is not going to be sufficient. And there's so many different sectors. Again, hydrogen is just one part of a really comprehensive portfolio, but especially the hard to decarbonize sectors like industrial applications, um, just making uh, ammonia, for instance, or other examples like steel or heavy-duty transportation where batteries may not be optimal. There, there are, again, many examples where it's just very difficult for countries to, to decarbonize. So they're looking at you know, importing a carbon-free molecule. And then the other, uh, I think, main reason is that the cost 
of renewables has actually come down really dramatically. And so you can actually get lower cost hydrogen now. And even you know, a decade ago with the shale gas revolution, we saw hydrogen from natural gas. Uh, that cost really fell um, significantly. Um, and then third, I think the big change is that technology has also improved really significantly. So when we were initially funding a lot of this work, you know, since then we've seen the cost of fuel cells, electrolyzers really come down, performance has improved. We've seen you know, fourfold increase or more in durability, better efficiency, there are more commercial products. So I think all of those um, pieces of the puzzle are starting to fall into place. And that's what's helping to uh, catalyze the, the increased interest. Very interesting. And I love how it's kind of technology, the market, policy, all coming together, um, moving the industry forward. Now, the DOE has been a key driver in, in hydrogen strategy and technology development in, in the United States. And industry experts often refer to the DOE's ambitious and very famous target of the hydrogen shot 111, $1 kilogram hydrogen in a decade. Can you tell us a bit more about the DOE's hydrogen strategy and the hydrogen shots and what it will take for us to, to get there? Yes. And when the Biden administration came in and President Biden actually asked our Secretary of Energy, what more can we do to really accelerate progress and meet our climate goals? And so that was the beginning of the Energy Earthshot Initiative within DOE. And the very first shot was hydrogen shot. And like you said, it's this bold, really ambitious, very easily articulated target of 111, so appropriate mm -hmm. for element number one. Um, and it's meant to be like the moonshot from over half a century ago. So to really galvanize the whole community. And there've been the, uh, a few other uh, earth shots as well, but the goal was really to look at all possible approaches. So all hands on deck and any way to get that, to that goal. We focused a lot on electrolysis and the kind of baseline cost is about $5 per kilogram when we started. That's an 80% uh, reduction. And then we've also launched an um, uh, incubator prize, again, looking at potential early stage approaches. We're planning some major funding uh, announcements to help ramp up manufacturing. Um, we also are looking at innovative approaches like pyrolysis or other waste. Um, again, you know, many, many uh, options to get to that goal. And in terms of the national strategy, that was actually required in the bipartisan infrastructure law. So as you mentioned, now we're seeing lots of um, policy developments. And so that requires uh, many countries actually have national strategies and we've been coordinating. Um, but this requires the U.S. to develop a national strategy and roadmap for clean hydrogen. So we did that and we actually released it, the secretary released it for public comment. So in the spirit of transparency and the comment period closed in December. So we're reviewing all the comments, but there are three main components. So basically target hydrogen for those really high impact uses, those strategic hard to decarbonize uses. Second is reduce the cost. So even though we have, uh, you know, we have the tax credits, we have policy, we still need to ensure that we have commercially viable, you know, long-term market sustainable um, products and systems. So uh, focus on cost, hydrogen shot fits in there. Um, and then we also have a focus on regional networks. So there we have the hydrogen hubs and 
And especially as we start to catalyze the industry, build up production, end use, connective infrastructure to, again, help to drive down the, the cost of infrastructure and, and get to scale. So those are just a few examples um, that are in the strategy. And then there are many concrete actions and uh, you know, details uh, in the strategy. So mm-hmm. again, a very uh, exciting time. Fantastic. I want to dive a bit deeper on this $1 a kilogram goal and this 80% cost reduction target because I love how, how bold it is. Um, looking at that target, I like to kind of um, categorize it into two different buckets, the CAPEX, so fixed costs, and then the OPEX, the variable costs. And within CAPEX, I kind of see two big levers, the cost of the stack and then the balance of plans. And then within the variable costs or OPEX, um, again, two levers, increasing efficiency and reducing electricity costs. Which levers do you think will lead to the most substantial cost reductions or what are you most worried about to, to get that cost down? Yeah, and, and there we have basically, I think there are two main categories. And one is how you actually deploy the electrolyzer. So you want really low cost electricity, low cost electrons, but you also want high utilization. So you want to be able to not just use the electrons when there's low capacity factor, uh, but run as much as possible. So you may need to come in with base load, clean electrons, for instance, nuclear, use low cost solar, wind. And then the second is that, like you said, the capital cost, uh, but you also want to improve efficiency because mm-hmm. again, most of the cost, over half the cost is the cost of electricity. Yeah. And so you have capital cost, durability, utilization, efficiency. Those are all the, the various levers that we're looking at. And so, and, and within the capital, um, there are very, depending on the type of electrolyzer, for example, if it's PEN, we would want to reduce the amount of iridium um, because that's one of the, the key issues. And so we have uh, created, and, and we have many targets. In fact, if um, those who are interested in the, the details under hydrogen.energy.gov, our team has posted the, the various targets. So for example, roughly $1,000 a kilowatt for a capital cost, um, system cost baseline, going to about $150 a kilowatt um, it really you know, ambitious reduction in capital cost in order to get those goals. And we have interim also in the bipartisan infrastructure law. It states that we need to get to $2 a kilogram by 2026. And so there we have a, a system cost target of about $250 a kilowatt. So again, starting from, let's say, roughly 1000 Again, there are many assumptions, depends on the volume of manufacturing mm-hmm. and so forth. But there are many, many targets in terms of efficiency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So would it be a fair summary to say that there's no specific lever that is going to count for the majority of the cost reduction? It's very much kind of incremental improvements across all these different levers that will help us. I think that the cost of electricity is still the biggest cost. Okay. And <laughs> so, um, but as we drive that down or you know, improve the utilization, improve the efficiency, then we also need to improve capital cost and uh, durability. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in other words, right now, the, the biggest cost is the, the cost of um, operating. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's helpful. And I think it's important to recognize that this $1 a kilogram that we're talking about is the cost of production, right? 
And we all know that one of the biggest challenges with hydrogen uh, is, is to store and transport it cost-effectively. I understand that DOE also has a target of a few dollars a kilogram for hydrogen, which includes that kind of distribution and storage costs. But it seems that that's less well-known or uh, something I hadn't heard about. Would you mind elaborating a bit on that and what we need to get there? Yes, sure. And it's true that we focus first on the cost of production because you need that low-cost molecule to start with. But then definitely we, uh, the delivery, the depending on the application as well. For instance, if it's for transportation, let's say heavy-duty truck, you not only need to deliver it, may need to store it, but depending on how it's used, you need to compress it, dispense it. So, so you have all of those different steps in mm -hmm. the pathway uh, to actual end use. And so um, low low, one of the lowest cost ways is pipelines, uh, but they're also, that's very capital intensive. And so now, for instance, if you're talking about stations, you can have two trailers that are delivering high pressure. Uh, liquid can deliver liquid tankers or to five times more than compressed gas. But again, we have many targets for the cost of, let's say, the hydrogen storage tank, mm -hmm. if it's an onboard tank, uh, if it's storage, let's say, geological storage or other large bulk storage, that's another challenge. The delivery cost as well as the energy density is a challenge. So you can also use hydrogen carriers or other materials that can have higher density than just high-pressure gas. So again, we have many targets uh, across the entire value chain. So it's not just production, but also the uh, transport, uh, storage, and dispensing, or finally mm -hmm. allowing mm -hmm. the hydrogen to get to the point of use. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine the right solution there on how to store and transfer it is very dependent on a specific use case. Uh, yes, and the final cost that's needed uh, again, will depend on the application. So for instance, if you produce hydrogen for a dollar, but again, it's market-driven and we see early adopters can probably use $5, let's say roughly 4 to $5 for the long-haul trucks. And that leaves you, you know, only 3 to $4 for the entire rest of the value chain. But that's actually quite uh, ambitious because yeah. today when you look at the cost of hydrogen, dispensing to a vehicle, it can be quite a bit higher than that, over three to four times higher. Wow. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great transition to start talking about different use cases. I understand that DOE has a very detailed roadmap for hydrogen, specified for kind of short-term, medium-term, and long-term. There was hydrogen in oil refining on the short-term, hydrogen in transportation, kind of more medium-term, and then use cases like hydrogen in the power sector, longer-term. Is there any specific use cases for hydrogen that you are most excited about or any end markets where you think hydrogen is being considered, but you believe it might not be the right fit? Yeah, I think that basically, um, again, the, the very, really hard to decarbonize sectors, I think, are the ones that there's most interest in because there aren't that many alternative solutions. So especially for those really long haul trucks, that's an example. And I also think that starting, and I think many agree that starting with the existing uses like the ammonia and the refining is really important because that will build up the industry because we already produce 10 million metric tons of hydrogen in the U.S., about 10% of the global capacity. 
And if you look at the global production of hydrogen, according to the International Energy Agency, hydrogen generation produces more greenhouse gases today than the entire country of Indonesia and the UK combined. So it's not being produced in, in a clean way. It's mostly from fossil fuels and carbon not being sequestered. So even, even regardless of new uses, uh, we do need to clean up renewable hydrogen production today because it is a commodity, a necessary commodity. We to make fertilizer, to uh, you know, make various um, products, uh, even gasoline. <laughs> we, we need that hydrogen. Um, but I do think that there's still quite a bit of work, but a huge opportunity for some of those hard to decarbonize sectors. And in addition to transportation, just enabling uh, energy storage, so long duration uh, energy storage, enabling renewables. It's really an enabler in many ways. And it's often called a Swiss army knife of energy, again, because it can produce mm -hmm. it from diverse domestic resources and use it. And you can, um, I think fuel cells also are a very uh, interesting application just because they're much more efficient than combustion. And steel manufacturing is another one that yeah. is uh, very much of interest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The clean hydrogen industry is still a relatively nascent industry, if I can say so. And, and that always comes with the risk for hype or, or misconceptions. What do you believe is the biggest misconception about hydrogen today? So I think the lack of awareness about hydrogen is one of the, the key challenges. So let alone having any misconceptions, but just being aware about hydrogen. People know solar, wind, batteries, or even geothermal, but I feel like you often have to explain hydrogen and fuel cells. And then second, I think the perception that is always 10 years away uh, even those that know a little bit about hydrogen fuel cells. And so again, the fact that it's already in the market, for instance, at the, with the Recovery Act over a decade ago, we, in our office, we funded a very early demonstration through our market transformation program of forklifts and backup power. This was a very niche application. So completely zero emissions in the warehouses. You didn't have to charge the batteries and there was some, some benefit. And we funded the early demonstrations to help de-risk the technology. And now there are over 50,000 in the market, over 200 stations, major companies like Amazon and Walmart. And every few seconds, some customer is refueling with hydrogen for that forklift industry. And I think, again, there's very little awareness about hydrogen. So I think that's one of the, the main challenges. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad you mentioned this limited awareness because I think that's exactly why we're here today. And more importantly, that's all the amazing work you and your team have been doing to get the word out and, and raise awareness uh, have really moved the needle on this front. And I'm sure we'll, we'll continue to do so going forward. So Nidia, this has been super insightful already. Uh, I'd love for us to move to the next section of this podcast, which is talking a bit more about your personal path and diving into a couple of more personal leadership questions. Um, to start off there, as I was preparing for this interview, I was looking at previous interviews of yours. And in one of these interviews, I learned that you always wanted to be a teacher. And one of the things that I find inspiring about teachers is that they touch so many lives, right? You can never tell where their influence solves. I'd argue that throughout your different roles, all the way from manager to chief engineer to now director, you've actually been touching 
many different lives in many different ways. Um, how do you look at your career path so far and what are your wishes for the future on that front? Oh, thank you for that question. And I have to say I did, I was a teacher, I was a visiting professor for some time and my mother was a physics professor and a sister who's an astrophysics professor and I'm always interested in teaching. I love teaching, but I actually didn't have the patience for grading. So I um, enjoy uh, you know, many, many different um, aspects of, of different careers. And I think it's helpful to try different things. And so I think I've always just been very interested in helping the next generation of the workforce and having those different roles. And many times, either as a manager or when I had students, I would sometimes see those who are very, very interested in progressing in their careers. And I would always say, you can't build a tree house without a tree. And so the first step is to really have a good foundation. So what, whatever it is, whether it's science or policy or anything, and, and don't be afraid to try different things. And um, for me, it's not really about the career, but, but how do you have impact and helping to take things you know, across the finish line Hydrogen, for instance, is an enabler, and so just being an enabler, um, and there, there are you know, many, many challenges, but um, it's great to, to see so many people over the years who've been uh, successful and helped to take things across the finish line. We're still not there yet, but hopefully we'll be there soon. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think that's also great inspiration for listeners who might be looking at similar career paths, but are much earlier in their career today and still figuring out how they want to shape the energy industry going forward. Sunita, I'd like to end uh, the podcast with, with a question that we ask every guest. Um, I have this strong belief that we all stand on the shoulders of giants uh, who came before us. And to use Isaac Newton's words, it's standing on their shoulders that makes us see further. In that context, who inspires you most and why? Yeah, I think I always say when I get that question that it has to be my parents first and foremost. And everything that they went through and how much they did to help my sisters and I. And so my father actually came to the U.S. on a cargo ship many years ago before I was born and he's passed away but without a penny basically and made um, you know made everything he ended up getting a PhD from Michigan State University and ended up being eventually being a director at the United Nations Development Program so it was always about giving back and then my mother also was very unusual in those days to have the PhD in physics and uh, did so much and so I think with all their hard work and inspiration. Education was the most important thing for them. And so saving, so to send you know, my sisters and I to school and, and all that was, I think, really tremendous. And, and then I also have to say that the people that I work with are very inspiring. So especially my office, when I see all the dedication, just the commitment, and just the entire hydrogen community, it's a very close-knit community. There's a lot of solidarity. And so when I first became director a long time ago, I started the practice of bringing in fellows. So those who we have a fellowship program and junior folks and contractors, many of them become federal employees and many have joined the private sector now. They're doing really well. And so I'm really you know, proud of them. And so they, they inspire me also. And just in general with those who hired me to, again, over 20 years ago, so specifically Joanne Milliken, Steve Chalk, took a real chance and helped to shape the program that we, we have today. 
Beautiful. I, I love this focus on giving back. And it's so clear to me that you're paying that forward as well. Sunita, thank you so much for your time today, for uh, all the learnings and especially for the inspiration. There's so much happening at the DOE right now, and you're clearly uh, leading the industry and driving change in the hydrogen industry. We are very much looking forward to continue to follow all the incredible change that you guys are um, fueling, and we will uh, keep cheering you on from the sidelines. Thank you so much for the conversation today. Uh, a quote that I often use is, there's no, no one person can whistle a symphony. It takes the whole orchestra. And so now more than ever, you need all hands on deck. So this is such an important time in history for the climate. Everything, we look at everything around us. And so we need government, industry, universities. Uh, we need investors and especially the focus on disadvantaged communities, those who are less fortunate. The administration has a Justice 40 initiative where 40% of our specific federal investments would benefit disadvantaged communities. So those who historically experienced injustice. And so again, I think that this is such a critical time for all of us. And how do we ensure that we have all hands on deck to really accelerate and move the needle? And impact, I think is the key goal. So thank you for everything you're doing to help in that regard. <laughs>